0: Jeremiah Johnson is with Valley Sports Indiana Pacers in action in Las Vegas later today, of course, in the semifinals of the in-season tournament. Jeremiah, when he is not, of course, broadcasting Pacer games... Actually, he's broadcasting Pacer games when he's not either Charlie Cardinal or participating in the Peru-Indiana Circus Circus, so it's only fitting that the Pacers would be playing in Las Vegas. And J.J. joins us now. Jeremiah, first off... Um, to go back to it, I thought personally that the in-season tournament, when they first announced it, and I know we're going on the way back here, but I, I was a little bit confused by it. I kind of didn't get it. Uh, I, Admittedly, open disclaimer, I don't actively follow you know, like EPL soccer, so I know that there's the precedent overseas about how this would work. I thought it was a little hokey, and then I was in that Boston game and the, uh, that's the most electric crowd that I have felt at a Pacer game in probably 10 years. And I had to wow. remind myself like five different times, this is a regular season game. This feels like a it, – it felt like literally I, the next day I had to get up and go over for qualifying at Indy. You know what I mean? And um, so it worked. I was wrong. It worked. And it's super cool. I would assume that you agree with that sentiment about the electricity against Boston.
2: Yeah, I would agree, and I thought at the beginning, while I didn't quite understand the totality of it and the big, didn't see the big picture, I thought it can't hurt anything because I do know some of the November and December games can lose some interest. They can have trouble attracting attention on national shows, even on local shows at times because it's football season and yep. you're trying to just get some interest and get people talking about the NBA. So I figured it can't hurt anything, and you're not really disrupting the 82-game regular season schedule at all, so why not give it a try? And I actually felt it the very first group play game. When you walked out and you saw the court, and they were able to keep that news, I think, under wraps a little bit, and so no one really knew the courts were going to be different until that afternoon when the first games were being played, and and Gamebridge Fieldhouse hosted the very first group play game. And so then it immediately felt a little bit different, and the Cavaliers had had guys, if you go way back since we're going back, uh, they'd had guys injured the entire first month of the regular season or first two to three weeks, and everybody was healthy for that game. And so that kind of was a trigger to me that yeah, they're treating this like a big deal. And the and the players for both teams, while it was not a playoff like atmosphere, uh, I can only speak for you know my household. My son went with a friend, and they were fired up when they got home because they said, "Hey, the Pacers are one zero in the in season tournament." And then you continue to follow. If you'd have lost that game. It may have not been as big a deal, and I'm not sure that they're having the same conversations today, you know, in Denver or in Dallas or in Atlanta. But I know it works here, and that game against the Celtics, with all I've read in the last two days and the podcasts that I've listened to and just the voices that have talked about the Pacers that may have done so for the first time in probably three or four years I don't know that there's a more impactful win for a franchise and what it could do for an organization than what the Pacers had against the Celtics.
3: Jeremiah Johnson of Valley Sports Indiana is our guest. Jeremiah, when you look at the situation surrounding this matchup, not just the inaugural in-season tournament, not just the single elimination aspect of it, but the idea of a significant NBA game taking place on a neutral court, that there's not a ton of precedent for this and i know that 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 you guys specifically aren't out there but but as you talk with those that are and as you watch this thing from afar how is this unique take on an nba game because the feel of it feels a lot like jake and i were talking about earlier an ncaa tournament game not just because of the single elimination aspect but the idea of an nba game that is not all-star weekend taking place on a neutral site
2: Yeah, you know, with all the soccer references when this started and even the FIBA with the tiebreakers and the group play, I give credit to the NBA for pulling from other sports and other things that are successful and not just saying we're the NBA, we have to do it our way, and we would never have a a neutral court game. And so this is a little bit of a goal. They They threw Vegas in there as just another incentive for some of the players. And I'll tell you what, inside that Pacers locker room, even though they can go wherever they want in the off season, and many do spend time in Vegas during summer league, even if they're not playing, to get a trip there in December with your teammates and your buddies, and to have uh, basically everyone take care of everything for you, you've just got to get on that plane and then walk to your room, and then they'll take you wherever you need to go, and you can have uh, the fun that you want to have. To have that opportunity in a neutral court environment is something else I think they were excited about. Now, you were, you guys were talking earlier in the show, and I heard talk about the attendance and what that will be like, and you referenced some NCAA tournament games, and I, I do think that's worth acknowledging or noting. Even in a Sweet 16 game, I think most time in a Sweet 16 game, the arenas are, are pretty packed. In a first-round game, it's, there's still juice in the building if every seat isn't taken. So I don't know what it's going to be like in Las Vegas, T-Mobile Arena, 18,000 fans and two o'clock on a Thursday in Las Vegas. And with the short turnaround, if you're, if you want in Milwaukee and you're a Bucks fan and you wanted to decide to go, you had to pull the trigger pretty quickly um, to make arrangements. So I do, I do think it'll be a challenge for the league to, to get that completely filled, but we've seen them put on shows and on TV, I'm guessing it will look like a pretty big atmosphere and a pretty big deal. And I do look forward to uh, after the fact, talking to some of the players, coaches, people that are on, on the grounds there to see what it was like. But uh, we're not used to seeing neutral court. I saw one in London with my own eyes. I hope this game goes better than that uh, Pacers-Nuggets game I saw in London in, I think, 2017.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kiskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali is right for you.
0: Jeremiah, obviously, Tyrese Halliburton is playing at you know at times he's the first guy that I've seen. Victor Oladipo had a little of this, but that, that has that lightning in a bottle capability, right? Where all of a sudden he hits a couple of them from real deep, and you go, okay, he's feeling it. It's like NBA Jam, like he's on fire. Get him the ball, right? His defense at times is obviously less than desirable, but they've they've gotten good play from a lot of players. So, at the risk of sounding negative, but simply being realistic, the guy that Indiana right now needs to get more consistency out of if they want to maintain the level of feel-good nature they got from that Boston game, the guy that is the most important to them from a consistency standpoint is who?
2: Uh, I guess I'll give you two. Sometimes that's cheating a little bit, but I'd go with Buddy Heald and Miles Turner. They're, they're the most experienced players that are getting – uh, regular minutes i mean bruce brown's probably up there as well but you know buddy's going to be on the court and he had he's been a little streaky this season he had that stretch of three games that started when he went into the starting lineup in atlanta where i think he was 16 to 24 from three now you you can't say he has to do that in every three game stretch but then he, he fell off just a little bit um, and so his ability to stretch the defense he's going to do that even if he goes through a cold spell but you almost want to look down at the box score after every game and just assume he's going to have three or four made three-pointers. And that's, you know, nine or 12 points that you just count on every single night from Buddy Heald. Been a little up and down, but I they found something. They have really found something that they knew was there all along and how well he plays with Tyrese Halliburton. So as long as those two can continue to click and Buddy can be consistent, I, I would say Buddy. But Miles Turner gets more opportunities now with Tyrese Halliburton than he had in his first Seven years with the Pacers. And so he's going to have to continue to confidently shoot the threes. His percentages are down just a little bit this season compared to last season, but consistency probably important. And, you know, he has attacked mismatches and, and smaller players on the post more this season than I think we've seen from him in the past. He's got, to, he's attacked the offensive glass and second chance opportunities more this season than he has in the past. So um, I'm not saying he's been inconsistent, but you need those two players to continue to be, i say 15 to 18 point per game guys, because then you know if, if Tyrese gets to 30, then all of a sudden you're in a pretty good spot. He had 44 last Thursday in Miami, and no one else had more than 11. And so that would be the one time that I don't think the supporting cast stepped up to match Tyrese Halliburton, and that's why they lost that game.
0: Is Benedict Matherin one of those guys... And I don't mean this is a detriment to him, Jeremiah, but is Benedict Matherin one of those guys that to get the most out of him when he's on the floor, he's got to be the guy that is the straw mixing the drink. And that it's difficult for him to be an auxiliary piece because he has an alpha in him that means that for him to flourish, he has to be the guy.
2: Yeah, I'm getting, were you thinking of Benedict Matherin when you asked the previous question? Is that where you were You were no, leaning?
0: Actually, no, I, I, because he's a young player, right? I mean, I think right. they're still feeling out who exactly. Now, I will say, and I've mentioned on this show before, for Benedict Matherin, the thing to me that's intriguing is I think that, and I still think that he is going to be a really good career Robin to Tyrese Halliburton's Batman, but I think that maybe there was the thought that he would be that a little bit earlier and therefore you could kind of start to move Buddy Heald back a little bit and then I think they realized you know what we Buddy Heald let's insert him back in cuz Matherin just isn't quite mo- ready for that moment yet and that might be why because he's learning those roles you agree yeah, with that that's
2: a, yeah that's a that's a fair assessment and I was I was a little surprised but it made complete sense in that in-season tournament game in Atlanta, that you saw the the starting lineup that, that Tyrese was maybe a little more comfortable with guys that could play exactly the way he wants to play, and he knows where they're going to be at all times and what they're going to do with the basketball. I, I do need to just kind of caution the fans just a little bit that Benedict Matherin is 20 years old, and the style the Pacers are playing with, with Tyrese Halliburton, it's not only unique to the NBA, it, it's pretty unique to any level of basketball, and so um, it takes, I think, a little bit of time to adjust to this fast pace style to get it out of the basket, even if you give up points, and to try to get down the other end of the court and to move it around the perimeter, and you don't want any ball stopping. And I haven't watched a lot of I, – I didn't watch a lot of Matherin at Arizona, and, and obviously at levels before that you don't know how the game was played. But my guess is this is just a transition in terms of how you're used to playing and then how you adjust to playing – in this style. And I I agree with you that big picture two, three years down the road, it would be ideal if he can be that Robin and Tyrese Halliburton's, uh, the Batman and, and the backcourt is those two guys moving forward, but it's not there yet. And so he has thrived in an off the bench role as a rookie, really from day one last season. And so get him in that role, have him a little more comfortable. Andrew Nembhard and TJ McConnell, if they're running with him, they know where he's going to be, they know he would have to be the guy to generate a lot of offense with that group. And so they're going to make sure he gets those opportunities. So it was a great decision, I think, from the coaching staff. It may have not been what Benedict Matherin wanted at the time, and he may see himself as a starter right now. But it's just his second year. He's, he's still learning things, and there is still time for that relationship and that on-court chemistry with Halliburton to grow. If it's not to the level, maybe you'd like to see it just yet.
3: Jeremiah Johnson of Bally Sports Indiana joins us. Pacers-Bucks tonight. NBA in-season tournament semifinals out in Las Vegas. Jeremiah, my answer, maybe a dark horse answer to Jake's earlier question about who's most important or impactful or who needs to step up tonight would be Aaron Neesmith when I'm looking at defensively who's going to draw these assignments for the Pacers going up against Milwaukee, this time pretty much at full strength. When you look at the last matchup back last month or early on in the season when Giannis goes for 54, but you can kind of double him late and dare other bucks to shoot you. With Damian Lillard out there, for me, Neesmith, in theory, would be somebody late-game situations I would guess would draw that assignment. So kind of a two-part question. A, am I right on that? And B, whose weight does Giannis fall on late defensively for the Pacers? Do you imagine it being Miles Turner? Or do you think it is a combined effort once again, even though Damian Lillard is out there now?
2: Yeah. Your backup center position is not where it was to start the season. No Daniel Tice, no Jalen Smith for this game. So it's vital that Miles Turner does not get in foul trouble. So for that reason alone, I would worry a little bit about from opening tip and throughout that Miles Turner is guarding Giannis because he's just going to, he's going to draw some fouls. He's going to get to the free throw line. And if two minutes in miles gets a foul and four minutes in, he gets his second foul and then he's playing the whole game, not, Free flowing but worrying about getting fouls it's really going to impact your entire game and your rotation plan so with that in mind Aaron Neesmith is a very logical player Obi Toppin is turning into a little bit more of an option defensively than I maybe would have thought at the start of the season and I was really impressed with how he played against Jimmy Butler on the second game in Miami now maybe what I'm seeing is he may be a guy moving forward against a really good wing let's say You play Paul George in the Clippers or even with Kawhi on the court, and Obi's guarding one of those two guys, and and you like what he can do based on how he did against Jimmy Butler. I'm not 100% sure if he's the guy you want to guard uh, Giannis, but Aaron Neesmith could be maybe not in the starting lineup, but maybe four minutes in, maybe an early check-in, and I would say he may play third or fourth most minutes of any pacer in this game because of how well he's impacting the game on defense, but then also offensively. I don't know if the Pacers win that game without two or three possessions before the Tyrese Halliburton four-point play where you need someone to make a play, and he was the one that had the confidence, and he was the one that had the ability to finish. So uh, I, I think for this game specifically, yes, Aaron Niesmith is going to be huge offensively and defensively.
0: Jeremiah Johnson is our guest. Of course, you see him on Valley Sports Indiana as the sideline reporter and the pre- and post-game host for the Pacers television broadcast he also is a retired was it trapeze artist is that what you were jeremiah
2: <laughs> yeah i think this is my first uh, circus and mascot discussion on Quarry and company so i'm glad mm-hmm. you could carry this over from your it's previous, a tradition
0: like uh, unlike any other yes
2: your previous shows i was just in side by side so technically it was a trapeze but not of the <laughs> variety that you would you would envision from flying across the uh, three rings
0: were you just a one year and done in the peru circus for those who don't know yeah. Jeremiah, a native of Peru, the amateur circus capital of the world, which for a year was the professional circus because he was in it. Uh, were, were you just in it for a year?
2: Just one year. There was a unique quirk where where I was at, you could not play Little League Baseball until age Ooh, eight. Yeah. And I don't know that I didn't want to play t-ball, so I did the circus at age seven.
0: Now, did you have to wear tights? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, we've had this discussion.
2: Maybe we should have it again in, in July when it's top of mind. But it's, it's, a, it's the real deal. I invite anyone listening to, uh, to make the trip to Miami County the third week in
0: July. It's Wait. the first I've, I've heard of this. This is fascinating. Ah. You, yeah, of the well, Peru Circus or, there, or of Jeremiah's uh, so participation? Jeremiah's participation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah, just so you know. Jeremiah began, as as he just mentioned, he was a trapeze artist and, and amongst other things. He, he downplays it, Jimmy, quite frankly, downplays it. But Houdini, you know, Houdini tells people he did card tricks, right? I mean, right, yeah. And, and so, and then JJ, because of the fact that he was the, uh, he was basically, no, a lot of people don't know this, he was the high flyer at Peru. And then he went to Ball State and they knew of his high flying trapeze antics and so he became Charlie Cardinal. You were the only mascot that actually flew through the arena, right? Through Wertherner Arena?
2: Uh, you know, they would not trust me to that. I don't know if the apparatus could hold me. I was a little, I was on the larger (laughs) side of most Cardinals. Most mascots are a little smaller. So I did fit into the costume, but I was not going to be the kind like Boomer, uh, you know, going down from the rafters. If
0: the play in tournament had existed in 1998, would Michael Jordan or Dennis Rodman be the one guy that missed a game? (laughs) If it was in Vegas. Well, we already saw Jordan, the quote-unquote
2: flu game, he was able to play the next day. So while he would have enjoyed Vegas for sure, I'm guessing he would have figured out a way to get back on the court. Uh, for Rodman, he'd have been probably the guy that, you know, there's three bus times, and by the time you, you had the two buses leave for the arena and you're looking down at your list and you're like, is he going to make this third bus or are we going to have to go knock on his door and get him out of his room? That's what, I'm guessing Rodman would be a bigger challenge.
0: You know – the quote-unquote flu game. I'm just going to leave that there, but I'm with you, right? I'm with you on that. I got the tinfoil hat on that one. Uh, <laughs> Denver as well in 96 and the 72 win, but people can Google that. Um, JJ, what about Milwaukee for the Pacers? Other than the obvious, you know, Giannis, I-, I thought they did a really good job the first time that the Pacers played Milwaukee of having Nimhard and then at times I think maybe Neesmith kind of intercept Giannis when he came across the timeline and just basically cut off the snake at the head right across the timeline. And that kind of stalled Milwaukee's offense. Of course, they didn't have some of their bigger offensive weapons aside from Giannis at that time. What do they do differently, if anything, this time around in trying to corral him again and keep Milwaukee at bay?
2: What I'll be watching is uh, the, the final four to five minutes, that's why the Pacers won that game. I think they were down 10 with five or six minutes to play. And you started doubling him and making it difficult for him to make any decision as, as you kind of referenced there with Memhard flying at him a little bit. But they were they were basically saying, get the ball out of his hand, similar to what Atlanta did against Tyrese Halliburton in that fourth quarter of that game. And, and Tyrese has seen a couple of other times. So what I'm going to be watching is out of a timeout first half, do they play three possessions where they're they're double-teaming and they're swarming him and they're living with, okay, if someone else gets a shot, you're okay with that? My guess is early on you do that for the times that Giannis is on the court and Damian Lillard is not because you do not want to let him get those open looks from three. Um, Giannis, for the last few seasons, it felt like he was trying to expand his game and maybe shoot more three-pointers. In that game at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, he went back to the old Giannis where he was going to lower his head, he's going to attack the basket, and that's problematic. I still would rather him shoot outside than do anything inside the paint. So we'll see what happens. But will they throw – they, they're going to treat this like it is a playoff game, like it's game seven of a series in late April or in May. And so with that in mind, the substitution patterns, the different defensive schemes, maybe you throw some zone out there to just give yourself a little bit of help with Giannis in the paint, and you may give up more three-point looks than this defense is currently devised to give up, and you just hope Chris Middleton and some of the other guys on that team don't have career days. And you still would rather probably those shots happen than Giannis, but Damian Lillard is definitely an X factor that I'll be interested to see how he fits uh, with Giannis, having not seen it the first time.
0: You know, I I realize, Jeremiah, that you cover the Pacers, and so therefore you are absolutely – entitled to say look I haven't seen enough to know this answer but just in in kind of your assessment of Milwaukee when you have two great players like Giannis and Damian Lillard you know sometimes it takes a while and Lillard was was hurt for a while there you know Giannis has missed some games sometimes it takes a while for guys to figure out how to kind of mesh and coexist has that happened so far in Milwaukee or do you think that's still a process for them
2: I'd say it's a process and it's not just those two guys but to make a coaching change Uh, off of a team that was the number one seed in the eastern conference people forget they were the team everyone expected to be in the finals and then they ran into jimmy butler having a career series and that led to a trickle-down effect of most likely coaching change and i don't even know if they make that trade for damian lillard if they get by the heat and advance to the finals like many had expected and so it's a combination of those two guys playing together and then adrian griffin is he, you know, implementing different styles? Maybe he's the one telling Giannis, get back to what you do best. Get back in the paint. Draw some fouls. Uh, but after that first Boston game, the one the Pacers lost by 51, I think, I told their sideline reporter, I said, I think in, when this season is done, uh, the Celtics are going to be the happiest team of that sort of two-tiered trade um, compared to the Bucks because they got Drew Holiday. Now, revisionist history or maybe recency bias, Drew Holiday did not have his best game on Monday night at Gambridge Fieldhouse. And then there's a decent chance Damian Lillard has a good good week this week, and, and the Bucks are very happy to have Lillard and to not have Drew Holiday. The biggest thing is, early on, defensively, the Bucks have not been as good. But if those two players are on the court, it gives Giannis some help and another option in a late-game, critical, clutch situation. And that's where they hope they can be better than they were when they lost that series to the Heat.
3: Jeremiah, what's more important to a Pacers win this afternoon? North of 40% from beyond the arc or single-digit turnovers limited in terms of how they take care of the basketball?
2: That's a pretty good question. I would say they could probably go mid-30s on their three-point percentage, and uh, the turnovers might be the key because uh, the Pacers, you know they're going to get out and run when they get the opportunities, but you don't want the Bucks. They're going to execute in the half court. If they can execute in the half court and they also – get those turnovers and you allow Giannis to get out in transition on a fast break. I don't know how you stop him in that situation. If, if there's a steal and he gets the ball at half court, uh, you can't do the take fouls anymore, but if you could figure out a way to, to make some take fouls before he gets to the paint, I would advise doing that. Um, so I think the turnovers are probably the most important. And I mentioned that reading a lot of different articles and different um, listening to podcasts this week, it was really amplified from David Thorpe in an article on his sub stack that I read this morning about the number of possessions and the pace the pacers are playing. And to do that and still be near the top of the league in the least amount of turnovers per game should not go unnoticed, should not be glossed over that. That's really hard to do. You would expect a little bit more of a carefree atmosphere, uh, more turnovers when you're running up and down and, and trying to push the envelope envelope a little bit offensively and to be down in single digits in that same time, that's been a reason they've been able to beat some of these good teams. So I'll, I'll try to say keep those turnovers to around 8, 9, 10, and as long as you're in the mid-30s or in the 30s somewhere, threes. I think you still could win the game.
0: Jeremiah, we appreciate the time as always. I know it's obviously a busy time of year you know, with just the games in general, family, holidays, et cetera. So we do appreciate the time. And the next time that you're on, I will wait and stave it until the second to next time you're on to, again, call you the high-flying Jeremiah Johnson.
4: How's that?
2: Well, I will say this must be a big week because I hit the uh, 107.5, the fan trifecta. I got JMB one day, I got the wake-up call yesterday, and I got the call. Even though I think I was a last-minute fill-in, I won't be offended. But you saved
0: uh, the best for last, did you not?
2: well i know but i don't know that i've been on with you two together so i was hoping i hadn't done anything wrong but i'm glad to get i'm glad to get the invite
0: that trifecta
3: used to get you a free sub i don't know what it gets you nowadays but uh <laughs> and i'll tell you what jeremiah makes a good beer
0: also just so you know yeah
2: jeremiah i was gonna johnson. say it gets me a free hat from jeremiah johnson <laughs> that's yeah, right that that's, exact,
0: that's man, exactly and, uh, right to jake yeah appreciate it man okay all right jeremiah johnson from valley sports indiana
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
0: By the way, one note before we get to what's happening on West 56th within the AFC South. Eddie Garrison, you had just made the observation that to the surprise of many, perhaps, there is one guy, even though we know Christian Kirk is going to be out for Probably the remainder of the season for Jacksonville, there is one guy that is practicing. Correct? That is correct. Uh, the Jags tweeted out a video of Trevor Lawrence of him throwing the football in a red, cont- a non-contact jersey out there at practice today for the Jags. So was he going through practice itself, or just throwing the ball around? He had his helmet on, so I would assume he was going through practice. Uh, joining us now is Matt Taylor, the voice of the Indianapolis Colts, and Matt, uh, obviously our focus here is on what's happening with the Colts themselves, and we were just discussing uh, a guy who I love his upside, and I think is a going to be a big player for them down the stretch perhaps, Juju Brents, and he is back on the practice field today as well, Correct.
1: Yep, he's back there today. We'll we'll find out what his designation is. But the fact that he's out there in any capacity is good. So whether it was limited or full, um, that's certainly a a step in the right direction. I, I think this is his first game or first week that he's practiced at all since he left the Cleveland game early. That was back on October 22nd. So um, going into this week, you're right, Jake. He was in danger of missing his sixth consecutive game. Um, so the fact that he's out there today is really, really big. Now, whether or not he can um, you know, get out there and play and start and go from you know, missing five games to playing 60, 70 snaps, I don't know. But um, it, it's really big in terms of his development as a rookie to get back at practice and get back on the
0: game field. You know, Juju Brentz and you know, Matt, maybe quite frankly, it's even too early in his career to determine this, but I really was impressed with him, uh, to my surprise, quite frankly, just because of not because of him, but I mean the fact he was a rookie that missed some camp. I really liked what he was able to do. Is he a guy that simply possesses the size and athleticism that was allowing him to show competency to this point before even learning NFL type scheme or? Or did he learn scheme and become a quick learner right away, and so therefore, even from a tactical standpoint, he was doing what a corner needs to do, if that makes sense what I'm asking?
1: Yeah, I think all of those things are true. I mean, I think you have to give him credit, too, because you're right. He missed a bulk of the time in the off-season workout program in the spring when you're trying to get indoctrinated into the NFL and life and scheme and a new coaching staff. So he missed a lot of that time. Then he missed a lot of time uh, with a different injury. In the spring, it was the wrist. And then I think in the early part of training camp, it was a hamstring. Now he's been dealing with a quad for the better part of, uh, you know, almost a month and a half here. Um, um, so it's, I think it's a credit to him to be able to overcome those things and still show that, you know, he can play a high, at a high level. You know, bumping up from the Big Twelve uh, to the NFL, and you know, he's one of those guys that the Colts prioritized his measurements. You know, to to get your foot in the door with Chris Ballard, he's a big, you know, measurement guy, and he's a big, you know, benchmark in terms of height, weight, speed, things like that. They want long. Uh, big, athletic corners—you know, guys that are tall but have good footwork. He doesn't have the the best blazing speed, but he's a guy that it—he's—he's—he's it, he's, he's hard to throw over, you know, because he's so big. And we we talked about that at the early part of the season. I go back to that Baltimore game. He's hard to throw over, and you know, some of that uh, speed that he lacks—you know, that elite speed that he doesn't have—he makes that up with. Just being really kind of hard to see the ball over for quarterbacks and wide receivers. And you know, he's he's very instinctual as well. Again, that Baltimore game, his first game, his first start, punches the ball out, I think, of, of Kenyon Drake, who was with the Colts in the uh, in the preseason. Colts got a big takeaway in that game. So he's pretty instinctual, um, high football IQ, high character guy, which the Colts obviously always prioritize in the draft. Um, you just want to see him, for his own personal sake, get healthy and string a couple weeks together towards the end of his rookie season to build some motive, momentum heading into year number two, where I think on paper and projection-wise, the Colts are going to count on him going forward to be a staple uh, in the starting lineup in that secondary.
3: Voice of the Colts' Matt Taylor joins us, brought to you by Shelly Materials, the concrete and aggregate experts. Matt, we had Alec Pierce on earlier this week, and he referenced the adversity that he's gone through at times this season, but looks like a bright spot for him and, and a growth stretch for him the last couple of weeks, most notably those three catches for hundred yards and a touchdown, including that big 55 yard perception in overtime, Matt, you have the best seat in the house in terms of seeing plays develop in terms of being able to get that bird's eye view vantage point. I know the film that you watch in addition to your prep as well. So an honest question here with Alec Pierce, when you look at him this season and the breakout that's followed the last couple of weeks Has it been, oh, he's getting open more now or he's being more effective now as a receiver or has it been, well, he's a product of what schematically Shane Steichen is trying to operate with having Gardner Minshew, who is a good quarterback but doesn't have the same arm strength they were hoping to utilize with Alec Pierce's tools if Anthony Richardson was out there?
1: Well, I think he, you know, I think his his self-admitted struggles... And I think you know Alec is honestly being his his harshest critic right there. I mean, I I think he's having a much better season than he probably thinks that he is because of um, just him you know wanting more and the you know the competitive spirit that he has. Um, but I, I haven't, I mean, last week aside, I haven't looked at his season this year as you know down or a failure or anything like that because you know, he's had a lot of different quarterbacks and he's had several different offensive coordinators in two years. I mean, last year was, you know, a carousel for everybody, but, you know, he thought going into the season, you know, a guy that was going to complement his skill set was Anthony Richardson by pushing the ball down the field. And they haven't had Jelani Woods all year in their ability to do that as well. And that's kind of taken away, you know, some attention that Alec might've gotten um, deep down the field on some of those go routes and, and deep posts and things like that. But, no, I think I think it's a couple of things with with Pittman's emergence um, as the possession receiver. You know, I know Rick likes to call him, you know, a, a tight end in a uh, wide receiver's body. You know, those numbers to numbers catches. You know, over the middle of the field and not a big yards per catch guy, but high volume in terms of targets and catches and first downs and just big time catches. That's Pittman, um, and so. I think Pierce is just sort of, you know, he's bu- he's buying his time and is waiting for those moments And they showed up in overtime. The Colts knew in that situation in overtime, they got the ball back with four minutes to go in overtime, knowing they had to get points. And they also knew that they needed a chunk play, and in the worst way. And Minshew saw the coverage, and he knew, based on what he saw scheme-wise in the secondary, that the shot down the field to Pierce was going to be open, and he took it, and he hit it, and it was the play of the game for the Colts. And so, you know, I think... I think Pierce is, is is he's wanting to be he's, he's showing a lot more urgency than than his uh, his receiving totals uh, will tell you and you know his his position coach is Reggie Wayne and. You know, certainly he didn't really get going and established until year three or four because of Marvin Harris and I think Pierce is kind of in the same mold where he wants more than, than he's able to produce right now and what the Colts are asking of him but there's going to be more points in time you know the rest of this season where Pierce is going to flirt with more 100yard receiving games and be more of a focus within this offense because the Colts will need him to be based on what teams are doing in the running game uh, to take away you know Moss and Taylor uh, and then of course what they do to bracket off Pittman you know there's going to be plenty of more games you know later this year where Pittman's going to get more of a focus um, from a secondary he's not going to have eight nine ten catches every single game that's where the door is going to open up for you know Ogletree and and Pierce and so on and so forth so I, I really haven't bought into the narrative that that Pierce is having a you know, a, a slump of a sophomore season because that's just not what the Colts are asking of him right now. Um, you know, Gardner Minshew is, is taking what the defense is giving him a lot of the time to move the ball and to be efficient. And obviously, it's a high volume to Pittman. But there's, I think, plenty of trust there into, into Alec Pierce, especially in crunch situations. You know, a 36 yard touchdown and a 55 yard bomb in overtime to get the Colts 10 points there.
0: Matt Taylor's our guest, the voice of the Colts. Matt, listen, you take a four-game win streak any way you can get it, right? I mean, if four straight teams decide that they're going to forfeit and you win four straight, hallelujah, we won four straight, right? I, I get it. <clears throat> Reality is that it wasn't the upper echelon teams the Colts played, but you got to beat the teams on your schedule. But what area do the Colts most need to tighten up or or fix and clean heading down the home stretch, that they were able to kind of get away with not having running in full rhythm just yet over the last four games.
1: Well, you know, I think it's still, you know, the the rush defense. Although, you know, you're playing the worst rushing offense in the NFL this this week in Cincinnati. You know, they only rush about 82 yards a game. Um, That's not to say they can't beat you and they can't be dangerous with, you know, Mixon. He's a really, really hard physical runner, and they got Chase Brown. And you know, I'll raise my hand. I'll admit that I I had no idea who this guy was prior to uh, watching Monday Night Football as a fifth round pick out of Illinois. And you know, still what the team produces in terms of the depth chart, Cincinnati still has him listed. Let's see, what fourth on their depth chart? Um, And he's he's really, I think, better than that, and more than that in terms of the usage uh, to this point. Behind Mixon, he ripped off a 31-yarder the other night against the Jacksonville Jaguars. So you you still have to do a better job of stopping the run, and you are also getting Grover Stewart back this week. That's you know going to help you know a, a tremendous amount. So that that's first and foremost. And then I think. And, and you know, as it relates to what you're kind of getting away with right now, um, specifically on Sunday, you, you just got to be better in the red zone. You know, you're not going to win too many football games going one for five in the red zone, and let's see, three for fourteen on third down. Uh, you know, you're let's see, oh for five, or excuse me, one for five on goal to go situations. Uh, down by the goal line, that's that's not a winning formula right there. So the defense is racking up a bunch of sacks and a bunch of takeaways, which has kind of masked some things both on offense and defense. Um, but you know, I think if the Colts take good care of the football, stop the run, and are uh, efficient inside the red zone, there's no reason why they wouldn't be in the game and able to uh, beat the Bengals coming up on Sunday. I know that's a lot of ifs, but if you just play clean football the rest of the way, there's no one left on the schedule where you say, I don't know, it's going to be tough to win that football game. They're all winnable, right? Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Las Vegas, and Houston, um, those are not... You know that's that's not uh, you know Dallas or Philly or San Francisco in a row. Those are all manageable teams fighting for their life, just like the Colts, to be in a position to make the playoffs.
3: Voice: The Colts, Matt Taylor joins us. Presented by Shelley Materials, the concrete and aggregate experts. Mate, I'm sure that he's stayed in shape and he, he's gone through his routine on his own, trying to stay physically fit for this stretch run. But a six-game absence is a tough one for anybody to overcome let alone a position as physically demanding as in the trenches like Grover Stewart is what is a fair expectation for him in terms of out of the gate assuming he has a normal snap count this week
1: hopefully i'm not uh proven to be naive but i I think he's going to ball out i I don't think you're going to miss anything with Grover Stewart in fact i mean if if anything he's going to be fresh he's going to be ready to go and he's going to be motivated he's going to be chomping at the bit because this is a contract year for him too and he needs to we kind of talked about this last week with the the rushing numbers allowed without him, obviously that 's kind of a feather in his cap in a weird kind of selfish way with him being able to say in the off season, "Hey, look what happened when you didn 't have me in the in the lineup, but in order for that to kind of hold up and to be you know as rock solid of an argument with he and his agent in the off season he 's got to come back these next five games and ball out and prove it the other way when I am out there. Listen, things, you know, things are, are solidified in the trenches. People don't run on us. We're able to get more tackles for loss. The pass rush on the outside is still stable. So that's what my expectation is for Grover coming up on Sunday. I don't think there's going to be any drop-off at all. I think you're going to see the same Grover Stewart, right? The same guy that started sixty nine straight games before his suspension. Um and I- I'm just expecting, you know, a big time impact and um a guy that's gonna flirt with playing damn near every snap on defense coming up this weekend.
0: Matt, you're a Reds fan, right? I am, yep. As am I, right? Do you ever because I do have this happen, it's a very sobering reality when I'm watching an Ohio State football game, and and I can't stand Ohio State, and then I realized that for half of the year, I actually share fandom with those people at that stadium. <laughs> and like yep. the same as – the Bengals are kind of uh, – you know, the Bengals don't hold for me because the Bengals have obviously not been a great franchise for so long, and in particular in my childhood, although obviously of late they've been outstanding. When they went to the Super Bowl, there were a lot of pretty cool videos, to be honest with you, of what it meant to a lot of people. But it's weird for me to watch a Bengals game and realize, like, wait a minute, these are the people I'm high fiving in the summertime.
1: That's I have the same realization when I go to Reds games. You've got you know the, the same people there, like the the central, um, or I should say, like the, the the native Ohioans, the native Cincinnatians, if that's the right way to put it. You know they're rooting for the Reds when I'm there. You know, coming from Indianapolis to watch a ball game, and so I'm high-fiving them. But then you also see people wearing Kentucky t-shirts. You, see, you know what <laughs> I, know I mean? It's... Like you see people wearing Kentucky t-shirts, Ohio State t-shirts, um, Cincinnati Bearcat t-shirts. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I don't mind Cincinnati, you know, the the University of. But I have a hard time high-fiving a Kentucky <laughs> fan. I have a hard time yeah. high-fiving an Ohio State yeah. fan. Yeah. But you know, we we want the Reds ace. You know. to to throw seven innings of no-hit no uh, shutout baseball, I can tell you that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I've, I've hyperextended an elbow by retracting a high-five mid-air when I saw the guy was wearing a Kentucky shirt, right?
1: <laughs> it's brutal. It, yeah, and you know, my like I told you, my, my pops uh, had his, his his office growing up had season tickets to IU football and basketball, so they'd always throw him a couple of games a year, and, and just going down there, rooting for IU, I can't, I can't do it, man. I cannot high-five a good Guy wearing a blue uk shirt
0: I, I, it's just not in my dna dude you, you we believe you me we share that in common what do uh, look i've been impressed and I, I realize that you probably have not sat in on the film sessions and analyzing the Bengals. but i think that we automatically matt thought that when joe burrow went down that it was like well they're done and you know sure they may not make a super bowl run but they've still got some pretty darn good weapons what What, if anything, can you tell that maybe they might be tweaking or doing differently to still take advantage of, say, Chase and Higgins, but at the same time have to to put a governor a little bit on their offense because of the fact Burrow's not there?
1: You know, it's funny you say that or ask me that because I had the same – realization about Cincinnati when I was watching them on, on Monday Night Football. And I didn't know who Jake Browning was. I'll be completely um, you know, honest with you. I mean, I kind of remember him in college at Washington because they made the college football playoff in 2016. But he was kind of out of sight, out of mind for me. And I thought, okay, you know, Burrow's out, and it's going to be tough for for Cincinnati to make the playoffs for the third straight year and win the division for the third straight year. And then here he comes. On Monday Night Football, on a big stage, national audience, and the guy is precise. And what I'm about to say is going to shortchange him, and I don't want it to, um, but he just proved to be incredibly competent and in control and relaxed. And what I took from that game is like Cincinnati's offense, I think with him, is just as dangerous and the playbook is just as open with Browning as it is with Burrow with all the guys around him, with Chase and Higgins and uh, Mixon in the running game, uh, Tyler Boyd as well. Now that all those pieces are kind of back and healthy and ready to go, Browning looked like there's there's no there's no play for Browning that they wouldn't call for Burrow. If you get what I'm saying, so um, he to me looks like a guy that's that's able to you know lead them on a on a quest to to make a playoff push. And the reason why I say that is, I mean, you guys have looked at the standings. The Colts are 7-5, and five, Cincinnati 6-6. Six and six. Obviously, if Cincinnati wins this game, both teams have the same record. But Cincinnati will hold the head-to-head tiebreaker over the Colts. So that would, you know, uh, move them up the, the, the pecking order in the AFC standings um, as far as the playoffs are concerned. But also, too, the right now there are three seven, and 7-5 teams in the AFC. you got the Colts, the Steelers, and the Browns. Well, Cincinnati plays all three of those, starting with the Colts this weekend. So they, they firmly have uh, a path to the playoffs, and, you know, you could argue they have their destiny in their own control if they take care of business, and I think Browning gives them more than a legitimate shot based on the way that he played uh, last last Monday night and the you know the, the the competence that he showed and the amount of control and poise that he had. You know, making only his second career start in the NFL, even though he's been in the league since 2019 and he's 27 years old. So it's pretty crazy stuff that it's kind of the battle of the backups between Gardner Minshew and Browning. Both guys uh, played each other in college in the Apple Cup game. Uh, it was it was Browning at Washington, Minshew at Washington State, and here they are in you know five years later trying to get their teams. Uh, as backup quarterbacks into the playoffs.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
3: Matt, as the play-by-play voice of the Colts, and I don't want to pigeonhole you here, but do you view yourself as a voice? as more of a a optimist when looking at the team, or do you consider yourself, which I consider you, to be optimistic but fair in terms of how you view the team? Would you say the latter is more towards you?
1: I would say so. Yeah, I would say more like optimistically objective, which I know can't exist in sure. the same space. <laughs> sure. but that, that's how I would uh, oxymoron classify myself.
3: Well, the reason I ask that is because how long, in terms of where the standings are, and maybe you already have, do you allow yourself to get to a place where it's like, man, the Colts might win the South? Like that That's a possibility now, depending on the health of Trevor Lawrence and how all the chips fall. Have you reached that point yet? And if not, how long before you get there, if at all?
1: Well, I, I remember you asking me a similar question earlier in the season. I don't know what, what week it was. It might have been after the Baltimore uh, game and the Baltimore win, but... You know, to, to me, after after that game, because I I went into the season with really no expectations, one way or the other, because I didn't know what to expect. Because you had Anthony Richardson, you had first time head coach, a lot of newness on both sides of the ball, and a lot of a lot of stuff that you were just kind of unsure about. So you're just kind of along for the ride. But based on what I saw early from the division and what I saw out of the Colts after that Baltimore win, and I know things have changed a little bit since then, but I said then there's no reason why the Colts shouldn't be able to compete for the AFC South championship this year. And I still kind of feel that way, even though it's essentially a two-game lead for Jacksonville over the Colts. They're 8-4, and four, Colts are 7-5, and five, but they swept the Colts, so they kind of have that extra game built in with the tiebreaker. Um, so listen, man, this is crazy. Anything can happen. I mean, I don't have to tell you guys. I mean, two years ago, the Colts were – Uh, I know Colts fans were like booking their flights to a wild card game on the road after the Colts, uh, on Christmas day, 2021 upset the Cardinals on the road. And then at that point, what was it like a 98% chance of making the playoffs, All they had to do was win one of their final two games against the Raiders and then Jacksonville, and Jacksonville was the worst team in the NFL uh, in Week 18 or 17, whatever it was that year, the last game of the season, and the Colts lost both of them. So you never say never. You can never really guarantee anything. So even though Jacksonville still has kind of a somewhat of a – you know, stranglehold on the Colts with the AFC South. Man, this is the NFL. It is not for long. It is week to week. Crazy stuff happens. And you just kind of hope and just have fun with it and and take each week uh, in stride. And, and, uh, you know, obviously the Colts have to take care of their own business, but then it's also fun, too, this time of year to scoreboard watch and see how all these scenarios play out and see the dominoes that may or may not uh, fall your way.
0: Colts and Bengals on Sunday and then kind of a, not necessarily a totally quick turnaround but Saturday for the Colts and Steelers back at Lucas Oil Stadium but we will talk to Matt between now and then. Have a good call and a safe trip to Cincinnati, Matt.
1: I appreciate you. By the way, you just said something. The way you pronounced Bengals. Do you say Bengals or Bangles?
0: Let me think. I without thinking about it, I would say the Cincinnati Bengals. How did I say it right there? The the Bangles is the band. The the I don't necessarily go with the hard e like the Bengals. But I usually I, say bungles, bungles for years <laughs> when I was growing up. Um, Cincinnati Bengals. I I would say in my mind I think of it like Ben, you know, like Ben Hartsock, Ben, and then goals like like seagulls. Bengal uh, yeah. man. I don't know. Then I say Bengals? I don't know actually. Which one do you go with?
1: I, I I there's like some like hybrid between the e and the a to me in my own head that makes sense. Like Correct. Cincinnati Bengals. I'm not saying Bengals, but I'm not saying Bengals either. Now it's I'll tell you the Cincinnati one where we Bengals. say it
0: differently between you and I, Matt. The team in Jacksonville to you is the what? The Jaguars. Okay, because I I thought I've heard you say
1: Jaguars. I have in the past, yeah, and I've gotten absolutely torched for it. Really? And it's it's the it's the Hoosier in me that came out. <laughs>
0: You know what else? The Hoosier New You comes out anytime some guy from Kentucky wants to high-five after a Joey Votto double, right? That's exactly right. It's like, I'll get you later, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's right check on that one. <laughs> That's right. All right, Matt, appreciate it. All right, be good, fellas.
4: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kiskali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali is right for you.
0: It is Thursday. <clears throat> we'll even stop on our road trip, if you'd like, in Greensburg so the kids in the back can see the world's, or the world's most famous tree growing out of the courthouse. Eddie and Jimmy, I'm going to both assume that I'm going to assume that neither of you are aware of the tree growing out of the courthouse. No, in I, I, I knew that factoid.
3: No. My dad took me there. There you go. Once you as a know kid.
0: why? Because it's world famous. There you go. You go there, and it's like, oh look, there's kids from Luxembourg checking it out. I would bet actually that Lance McAllister, who is one of the Voices on one of the great heritage radio stations in the United States, WLW out of Cincinnati and is a native himself of Carmel, at some point on the drive back and forth from the holidays or Thanksgiving, has just been overly tempted and pulled off 74 in Greensburg to see, in fact, the world's most famous tree. That is correct, right, Lance?
5: Yes, I am told in the early 1870s, citizens noticed There seemed to be a small sprig growing on the
0: northwest corner of the courthouse tower, and it has grown into the world famous tower tree like literally I mean I don't know if you know this or not Lance but it's a talking point in Bangladesh if you tell them you're from Indiana right <laughs> I'll remember that the next time I'm in Bangladesh yeah that's right hey um before actually you know what we're, we're here to talk to you and I appreciate the time man it's always good to talk to you about the Colts and the Bengals but before we do that just because we do have a fair number of Reds fans that listen to this show um you know in 45 seconds or less how big a surprise was it to you who have, you know, you got your finger on the Reds as much as anybody, that in fact, even though we knew that there was the possibility that Joey Votto's done as a Red.
5: Yeah, I think it came down to just a combination of, he hadn't, he hadn't played well, um, his age, that money, and the number of prospects that are ready and on the scene. It just became a matter of musical chairs, and there just wasn't a chair for him. And I understand he wants to play every day, I don't know who's going to be able to give Joey Votto an everyday opportunity. It wasn't going to be here. Um, ultimately, is the door still maybe a crack open to come back as a, a, a part-timer? Maybe, but I just can't see him accepting that. And I think everybody in the end, you know, the perfect script would have been to ride off into the sunset, and if not, retire right in some capacity. And it's, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but uh, it should not take away from one hell of a run that will wind him up in uh, Cooperstown eventually.
0: Well, there's another Joe not playing that is a big storyline in Cincinnati, and I think for a lot of people here in Indianapolis, the thought process was that when Joe Burrow went down, so too did the Bengals' season, and yet here they are. You know, It hasn't been a long time, obviously, but they still got some playmakers, and they they still seemingly are going to be able to hang into games. What's Indianapolis going to see with Jake Browning that is perhaps different or even the same – than what they would have anticipated had joe burrow been playing
5: i think it's a great question because they are similar and look last week is a blip on the radar of uh, of jake browning he's i don't think it's fair to think he's going to be that good every week it's probably going to be somewhere in between his first start two weeks ago against pittsburgh where he was okay but made a killer red zone interception that kind of um, curtailed a, a chance at victory. And last week, which was all pro- i mean, last week, he, Monday night, same week, I've lost track of the week, he turned in one of the finest performances in the history of the Bengals franchise. I mean, that's how good he was. Um, so he'll wind up somewhere in between that. But to your point of the skill, guys, when you can give him one of the best trios of wide receivers in the NFL at a running game that found itself with an offensive line that rediscovered itself, uh, you got a chance to do uh, some damage. It's kind of the wild card of all this because this city, after Jill went down, it was – there was depression sitting in. And then the Pittsburgh game came, and they lose 16-10, to and reality really smacked everybody, and it felt in many corners they were done. I mean, I, I if I had a dollar for everybody who said, now they should tank and just get a better draft pick, and it, I don't have much hair, but I want to pull it out when I hear that. Then all of a sudden, they, they, they go to Jacksonville on Monday night as a 10-point dog. They win the game, and hell, they're only a game out of the out of the, the seventh spot in the playoffs right now. And then they've got to jump some teams, but they're only a game out – um, with a tough schedule to go, but uh, there is Jake said after the game on Monday night, we're not dead, and they're not.
3: Lance, since they ended up winning that game, I feel more comfortable asking this question. I probably would have asked it anyway, but it's something that can be laughed off now. Did we ever get explanation, whether it was from Zach Taylor or somebody else involved, as to what the goal was and what the maybe exit strategies if any were on probably one of the worst double passes in the history of the sport. When Tyler Boyd throws that interception and Josh Allen just walks into the end zone with the pick six
5: yeah um, Zach's immediate comment after the game was well those didn't work out and then Brian Callahan their offensive coordinator on Monday night or Tuesday when he joined us on Bengal's line, he, he kind of said uh, he's talking about all the good and he says and we can just gloss over the uh, trick plays <laughs> I on one hand fans wanted create I'm not saying they did it because of the fans but fans always want creativity they want something different they want something fun and they only like it when it works they hate it when it doesn't work I I could understand and the need for creativity at times, but things were working so well with the passing game and the running game, it's almost like they ought to out thought themselves because it it was working so well. You didn't need to seem desperate and different and and desperate. You could have just gone with what you were doing, but they went the creative route and, and I will, as Tyler Boyd took the pass and turned to throw, it was like everything slowed down and I was screaming, no. And then I was screaming, throw it away or just be a wide receiver, run with the ball. And he did none of the above. He turned to throw it in the middle of, a bunch of bodies in it, and it went
0: a and I had to build wired. I still shake my head. Lance, what is Cincinnati's defensive liability? Gardner Minshew is driving down 74. He looks up at the tree, and he goes, here's a little tree that – you know was a just a little branch and now it's world famous and if i'm going to be exactly that in cincinnati and play the game of my life and carry us to a win i'm going to exploit what that cincinnati is going to give to me
5: Yeah, you know, it's been weird to watch how this defense has unfolded because the expectations were, with Lou Anarumo, their defensive coordinator, he was in line for a head coaching job in most people's eyes, and it just hasn't been the defense they thought. And they made a calculated gamble. They let Jesse Bates and Von Bell, their two safeties, go in free agency. Uh, One was a little bit older. Both were going to make significant money. And the Bengals in a a salary cap league with Joe Burrow and a bunch of guys uh, due to get big money made a decision to move on from both. Uh, one would have been okay. Two made it very difficult. So they're relying on a second year safety and they're now relying on a rookie safety. And with that comes the uh, volatility, unpredictability and the back end. They've given up so many chunk plays, so many passes down the field where if you're watching on TV, you don't see a defender in your TV screen. You wonder what's going on. They've been able to work around it by getting so many red zone stops this year, red zone takeaways. It's extraordinary how many times teams have gotten into the red zone and got nothing. Forget about being held to a field goal, gotten nothing. But you can't rely on that all the time, and it's still a, a a matter of issue with this team that they just can't get figured out. And I think it's that gap between the experience of what they had back there and the
0: inexperience now, and it's it's creating like that domino effect. Lance McAllister is our guest from 700 WLW in Cincinnati, part of our Thursday road trip. By the way, the road trip presented by our partners and friends over at AAA Hoosier Motor Club. Lance, when teams go into seasons, you know, oftentimes where a team is late in the year and how they respond to that is fueled a lot by where they thought they were going to be in August. Cincinnati hanging around the wild card area is a much different feel, one would assume, than it is for Indianapolis because of what the expectation was. Is there any chance that, as you mentioned, the fans themselves getting deflated with Burroughs' absence, is there any chance that that eventually sets in with the roster as well and they go, you know what, this just this just isn't where we thought we were going to be and, and we're checked out?
5: I don't think so, at least for the moment. I mean, the schedule is very challenging. Colts, Vikings, at the Steelers, at the Chiefs uh, on Sunday night and against Cleveland. And I really think it was a shot of adrenaline Monday night to see what Jake did. And I think collectively, this team has to look and say, well, crap, if he can do that, maybe we're not done. Even if they were thinking that they might be done, he gave them new life. And this, there's been such an ebb and flow to this season that day two of training camp, Joe injures the calf. And everybody's wondering how long is he going to be out? What's he going to be like when he comes back? He struggles when he came back, then he came back and they won four in a row and then they started struggling again and then he got hurt. So it's been like a a Kings Island roller coaster ride of emotion. And I think is, is maybe mentally and physically drained as they may have been after the Pittsburgh loss two weeks ago, what happened on Monday night kind of grabbed everybody's attention and, and refocused and, and now I think they, they, the theme was, we're not dead. And, you know, Jamar Chase even said it after Monday night's game, he says, that guy, Jake Browning, he says he's QB1 material. So I think they're all looking around and thinking, at least from the skill guy standpoint, geez, I thought my numbers might drop without Joe. Now they're thinking, well, heck, if Jake Browning can throw for 354 against Jacksonville, we're, we're all in this and we can do some damage.
0: Now, I'm glad you mentioned Kings Island because I got a Kings <laughs> Island question for you here. Um <laughs> Like anybody hearing my voice right now as a kid, I mean, I probably went to King's Island maybe once or twice a summer. I haven't been to King's Island since probably college, Lance, and I'm I'm embarrassed to admit that because I, I I love it, but I'm curious of this. Is it as big as I thought or is it because I was a kid? Like when I drive past, on when you go around 294 in Chicago and you see like the six flags over Chicago and you're like... That looks like the glorified fairgrounds. Now, is Kings Island massive or was I just a kid and I just assumed it was because it took the Brady Bunch that long to get the little poster from the little island all the way to, to Mike?
5: That's a great episode, by the way. That's but great. To your main point, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. But you drive by it, and the tower, the, the Eiffel Tower-like structure, plus with the, the added rides, the height of those rides, you always drive by it going, who the hell would ride that thing? Because there's loop-to-loops and up and down and sideways. and Yeah, as you drive by it, it is a monstrosity. From the parking lots to everything else, it is, uh, it is as you remember it.
0: Now, they don't still have, and I realize that this is how long it's been since I was there. Um... I think even the last time I was there, they had phased out Hanna-Barbera Land. So you don't park like in Huckleberry Hound anymore, right? now. Is it now like SpongeBob parking lot or something like that? Uh, you
5: know what? That's a great question. And as you say that, I found myself humming in my head this morning because I, I, I ran across this on, on TV last night. The banana splits. One banana, two bananas, <laughs> three banana, four, five banana. And I've been singing that oh, yeah. song in my head all day. So now that you've reminded me of it, it's clearly an earworm that won't go away. But there is some caricature-driven theme to the parking lot structure. I cannot update you on the current situation.
0: That's your assignment for next time, Lance, after you stop and see the tree swing by there. Check it out and report back, all right? That is big time, yes. All right, Lance McAllister, ww Appreciate the time, man. Anytime. All right, Lance McAllister, again, our Thursday road trip. Road trip brought to you by AAA Hoosier Motor Club. Purchase a one-year AAA Classic membership and save 50% have AAA's legendary roadside service. My man David, the other day, I saw him helping out somebody whose battery died in a rainstorm. That's what you get from AAA. Visit AAA.com slash gift if you want to give that for the holidays.